start counting, uh, JR. Come on, let's do it. Dare you. We're already live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time That's to do daily doses. Count. Well, you know, I, I got my shoes on, so I can only count but so high. So it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, we're going to introduce you to the man, the myth, the legend of Mr. Peter Nealon. So how are you doing today, sir? Oh, not too bad. So can you introduce yourself to people who are living under a rock and they might not know who you are? Well, I am a uh, recon marine turned author who's been trying to make a living of it for a few years now. A living of being a recon marine or of an author? Author. No, the if I was still a recon never... marine, if I was still a recon marine, I wouldn't have this. Well, it's the new military. Who knows what's permissible anymore? Besides, the government will never pay a marine, recon marine a living wage. What? Besides, all the all the guys that I knew were still in are either master sergeants or sergeant majors or master guns by now. So, yeah, I realized that when my uh, person that was a corporal when I was a sergeant is like, "Oh, you're going to come to my retirement ceremony?" I'm like, "Wait, what? <laughs> That's not how this is supposed to work." Yep. Time flies when you're having fun. All right. And the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we first found them. And uh, I actually found um, Peter through the Galaxy's Edge community. But maybe there's a a super secret special beer story in there for Doc because that's how she meets everybody. No, I. you told me click on this link. We have an interview. So I showed up. (laughs) You could have made up something really cool like you were at the Guinness factory, like testing samples. No, I'm not a really big Guinness fan. So, uh, send your hate mail to Seska. Send your hate mail to Seska and Peter <laughs> at Blasters and Blade Podcast. It's not a real email if you haven't figured that out, people. No, uh, I don't think they have figured it out because they keep sending they it to your publishing app. Well, they don't. The Blasters and Blade Podcast at G, uh, Gmail is a real one. Nobody uses that one either. But I think the only mail we get is from YouTube saying someone commented on your video. So YouTube at least loves us. Yes, it's that Antropia veteran. He likes to comment a lot. Well, you know, sometimes you got to do what you got to do for your country. All right, Doc, the next (laughs) question is yours. We got to see if he gets to stay. You got to ask him the religion question. Okay, Stargate, Star Wars, or Firefly? Wait, you changed the question on me. Yes, I did. We got to mix it up, as you ordered us to do. But I got one of them right. (laughs) You did. But now he gets to answer anyway. Stargate, Star Wars, or Firefly? Out of that list, probably, well, it depends. If you accept the truth that there are only three Star Wars movies, then Star Wars. <laughs> so as it, yeah, that's the right answer. I okay. see we have an orthodox Star Wars here. <laughs> that's fine. I'm not going to judge. So because we are polytheistic at the Blasters and Blades podcast, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or Conan? Lord of the Rings with Conan a close second. You know they're doing a new Conan series, right? And books books. Books. If it's not Bob Howard, then it's not really Conan. They haven't Sorry. decided yet. Steve Saffel's the guy in charge of the project. Okay, we'll see how that goes. Hopefully it's not a... I'm, 
shit show, but no hope. Oh, Steve's a really good guy. He knows his stuff and he knows his authors very well. Well, then maybe there's hope. Who's so, uh, what company is that? Tor or Bain or what? Titan Books. Okay. So they also do, I think, like the alien books and stuff. So, but back on to the topic of Peter. It is Peter or is it Pete? Peter. Either or. There was an R. Um, which was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Probably science fiction. Um, at a very early age, I found out about space and I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, I was five years old when the Challenger blew up and I was devastated. I think uh, everybody was. At one time, I actually had this idea that I was going to be a fighter pilot and then go to be an astronaut after that. Time and, time and circumstance changed that plan, obviously. And, uh, yes, you decided apparently you like being on the ground, or at least in the water. We do both, amphibious. So, so um, what would you say your first memory of speculative fiction is? Is going watching, reading, or playing games in the genre? Where did you discover it? Was, it? it was definitely reading, but that was a lot of books ago, so I don't really remember. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, you gonna see my question next? Is that, is that how we're playing this game to. today? We're playing so, it however uh, I want. Duh. <laughs> so, what is it that you love about uh, science fiction as a genre? These days, uh, getting out of my usual genre, which can be way too close to the real world. Um, okay. For, yeah, for uh, science fiction, sometimes it's just the the, the scale of it. That, I mean, I may or may not have written a story with a planetary crust getting cracked by nuclear weapons, so... What other genre can you do that in? Fair enough. So, the um, how did your love of reading um, speculative fiction transition into you writing stories in that space? Actually, that kind of started with the uh, Wing Commander novels back when I was in late middle school, early high school. Read through those and wanted more, and there wasn't really more not a small town library so i thought well i'll write my own so i started dabbling a very long time ago some of those manuscripts still exist and will never see the light of day okay but, so how much uh, will we have to bribe your mom to be able to see those not enough <laughs> really okay. some moms just live for the embarrassing of their children I'm saying that uh, the, the the actual figure of the bribe would not be nearly high enough. Oh. <laughs> There's what? a reason why she's kept them. Oh, she loves you. They're still garbage. <laughs> okay. That's beside the point. If you get famous enough, there's a theory that it, the, your fans will eat anything. So, well, a lot of them are finished, so <laughs> good luck with that. 
So many authors let their own real life experience influence the stories they tell. So were there any formidable moments that shaped you as a storyteller? Firefights in Iraq. Fair enough. So you were, That's, when were you over? Uh, first time was 0506 and then second time in 07. Uh, okay. Then I did a short stint in Afghanistan in 10. So you were getting there as I was leaving. Sorry, we couldn't leave it a better place for you. <laughs> so well, I'm not of, sure you were around where I was around anyway. A lot of uh, uh, the Wild West and Anbar. So we actually did a lot of resupply to the Marines for my first part of the tour. So we actually were all up in that area. But uh, so speaking of the your time in the Marine Corps, um, we ask all the authors that are military veterans this question, but how do you feel like your time as a Marine affects the stories you tell? Well, for one thing, uh, this series right here is the only, well, the only published stories that do not have a main character who is a Marine or a former Marine. Um, also, like I said, my genre really is combat. Uh, most of what I've written has been military thrillers with a lot of grunt level small unit action so there's a lot of firefights there's a lot of combat and i've drawn extensively on my own training and the experience of what it is like to get shot at and have somebody try to blow you up and uh i'll just some people seem to think i've done a pretty good job of it so okay um so when you write about these experiences do you ever draw on people you knew or you served with oh yeah Names change so, like the innocent or something. Yeah, most of them. There Bless may be you. one. Just pinch one nostril and then breathe. It'll go away. <laughs> I love allergies. I'm gonna kill Jr. <laughs> gonna kill you so bad. I'm gonna put that as a hashtag. <laughs> All right, so so you draw on people you served with. Um, do you ever tell them when you, you end up writing about them, or do you just let them see if they... Some of them, yeah. Um, one in particular is a uh, retired ranger I've worked with as a contractor, and he knows full well, and he thinks it's a blast, to the point that he apparently gave a copy to his mom and said, I'm in it, I'm probably going to die, because Pete kills everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. So uh, do you ever, so we've talked about how your time in the military affects the stories as you write them, but do they affect the way you engage with content as a reader or movie or, or yeah. books? Yeah, we're, we are some of the worst people to watch war movies with because yeah, we'll pick it apart. I, I may have done that with uh, quite a few high profile uh, movies so far. I get really bad about it with Generation Kill. Largely because I know a number of those guys in real life or knew them. So, so is this where we tell you your mustache is out of regulations? Uh, first of all, yeah, we never cared about that anyway. <laughs> uh, especially when you find out the 
what kind of scumbag Sergeant Major Shakespeare really was. But so that wasn't just for the TV show. I never knew him, but I saw the news story when he got convicted for uh, certain things that are probably not best not discussed in public forums. Understood. We will move right along. Doc, you get to talk yeah. fandom now. Yay! <laughs> so, have you had any cool fan art or cosplay? Doesn't there have to be was, the any of your others. There, there was a, uh, a guy who drew a kind of cartoon version of the main character from the American Florian series, Jeff Stone. Um, it was pretty cool. I actually then contracted him to do the first cover for Kill You On, which is actually now on its third cover. But uh, he, he does good work, but the problem with that one was because it was kind of the, the this kind of comic book look to it, it looked kind of like Archer. And so people looked at the cover and thought it was going to be like Archer, and it's not. Mm, that that you, can uh, really throw people off sometimes. Do you have yeah. the original cover you could share? Yeah. Let me dig it up here. <laughs> so I've actually looked at, I think, the second one you went with. And then I know now that Atheon is publishing them and, and republishing them, um, their covers are a lot different. Yeah. Is that normal that when a new publisher does a book or has the rights to an, a book that had a previous color cover, they just it is they just sometimes. So with Atheon, their one of their specialties is they buy underperforming books that they thought were good that didn't have the marketing, didn't have the cover, or the author didn't put the finished product together in an appealing way, even though the story was good. And so in that case, it almost always gets a new cover. Ah. I'm not actually seeing the, uh, the image file for that first cover. I've got the sketch, but I don't have the. All right, let me see. I think I've got one of them. I don't know if this is the first one or not. Let me share it real quick. All right. So this is the one that I remember. I think this is the second cover, though, right? Uh, no, that is that is actually the first cover for the Fall of Eldic. That doesn't strike me as very Archer, but then again, no. This is, we're talking we're talking different books. Uh, I was the the Archer one was a uh, one of my military thrillers. Ah. Oh, okay, okay. Because I know this one got recovered. I like the this one, but. All right, Doc. I mean, it kind of reminded me of Guardian, but I'm a huge Supergirl fan, so there's that. I know. I have poor taste in comic book shows, but I love them. So, weirdest or funniest fan interaction since you started writing? Well, uh, I had a few t-shirts made with the American Praetorian logo, which is a stylized eagle with its wings swept up and a rifle in each talent. And I was at work contracting, doing some security contracting, and I was in the gym wearing that shirt. And one of the higher level client personnel was in the gym too and came up and asked me about it. And I, yeah, it's actually the, the logo for the fictional PMC in some books I write. 
And he thought that was about the coolest thing he'd ever heard, especially the the contract at work is mostly uh, special operations dudes. And uh, we tend to sometimes surprise people with the stuff that we do on the side because we've all got bit with guys are going to school. We've all got businesses. The, well, they don't they don't expect us knuckle draggers to necessarily be doing the stuff that we do. I can understand that mostly because I've seen people just be shocked because apparent the infantry has the highest average ASVAB score of all the MOSs in the army. Not required, but average because it's just smart people who like to go and blow shit up. And if you've ever right. met Gary Poole or John Ringo, who were uh both infantrymen and incredibly smart. They just like to blow shit up and want to have fun. I have never met John, but I've been reading his stuff for many years. John is the quintessential E4 infantryman. And that is how you sum up John Ringo. <laughs> and I say this with love. He is an amazing man and his wife is even more phenomenal. But yes. I I have read his description of his writing process, and I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. <laughs> John is John's uh, he's he's interesting, but I do I think he does a great work. And um, but yes, you and him, quintessential people think that. Well, you like to go and blow shit up, so you must want no, no, no. You like to go blow shit up because it's fun, and you're and honest enough to go for what's fun. And some of us have been war nerds from an early age, too. So, so, um, so back to you and everything. Can you give us um, the highlight reel of your body of work? So, I started out with the American Praetorian series, which is five books and a novella long. Um, I actually wrapped that up. That, that's the one series I have finished close the door on it is done i'm not going back to it people keep asking me to but it's it that 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 universe diverged enough from the real world that i needed to just reset and bring it back and i killed an awful lot of characters in that last book a lot <laughs> is this one of those where if i read it i'd be calling you and going you murderous bastard quite possibly okay i have several friends one of them says we should make ribbons that you can just give them to us. Yeah. Um, after I closed that one off, I kind of took a little bit of a different tack for a little bit because Praetorians was very, it was, it's all first person. I do a lot of first person uh, from the point of view of a former Marine special operator turned contractor who gets wrapped up in essentially a shadow war against terrorists and other state and non-state actors in sometime in the near future. Um, I got really deep in the weeds in some of the research, particularly on the fourth book, uh, which the third book I was writing uh, the evacuation under fire of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad in 2014, during the ISIS crisis, when the non-essentials were getting impact out of the uh, embassy in Baghdad, and that was when I said, self, we need to get out of the Middle East for a little bit. So the next book took place in Mexico and Central America. And 
that one got dark because yeah. when you start researching cartels, things get really dark really fast. Yeah, I was stationed at Fort Bliss when we weren't allowed to go to all but like two of the clubs in El Paso because they were all owned by cartels otherwise. I was stationed at Camp Pendleton. So, yeah. And Tijuana was declared off limits entirely, the entire city, about two months after I got the battalion. Yep. For much the same reason. I also may have been on a training patrol down by Yuma where we were not allowed to have security ammo. We were not happy about it. Hmm. Yeah, that would Nothing be like it. Nothing like jumping into the middle of the desert, not very far from the Mexican border with no ammo. That's not my preference. No. So with, I, I decided in late 2016 that I was going to wrap up the American Victorian series. I finished it off with Lex Talionis, which is the longest book I've ever written. And if anything, it was probably darker than The Devil You Don't Know, which was book four. That was the one that a lot of people died. And it didn't exactly have a happy ending. It had the closest I could get to without being a Pollyanna about it. And that was still pretty grim. Um, then from there, I started what originally was going to be the Brannigan's Bastard series. But it turns out Amazon will not let you market a book with bastards in the title. So that got changed to Brannigan's Blackhearts, which, of which I just came out with book nine uh, last month. Oh, wow. And that is, that was a bit of a different tack. It's still very much an action series. It is still very hardcore, gritty combat. Anybody can die, and a lot of them have. But it's much more along the lines of the kind of 80s action adventure series. It's not as rooted in the real world. I have at least one island and one city that don't actually exist on the map anywhere uh, already. Um, so I can be my ta initial take on it because the very first book had an, an island in the Persian Gulf that doesn't actually exist. And my take on it was if Frederick Forsyth can do it, so can I. Yeah. Uh, because in the Dogs of War, the country of Zangaro does not exist on any map. And the Dogs of War is a classic that everyone should read, even though it's a little surprising that it's pretty much all the action is in the last like 20 pages. That can happen sometimes. Uh, life in the military is more than just always combat. So, okay. I tend to skip over a lot of the boring stuff. <laughs> Don't we all do that? Some, so. people, some people talk about how there's, well, there's not all this planning. Hey, yeah. I, I could write the, I could rewrite the Ranger handbook or the, the recon team leaders handbook. Why? Yeah. But, yeah. So. Okay. Yeah. We planned, we did leaders recon. We didn't see anything. I could do an entire book of dry holes and hides staring at empty intersections where nothing ever happens for three days and then leave. Who wants to read that? 
not me. And I don't no. think many people do. No. But so while all of those books sound really neat and fascinating, uh, we're here to talk tonight about the Unity War series. And the first novel is Fall of Veldek. Did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah. So where did you get the premise from this universe? Psychedelics, too many armories, eating too many crayons. Because, you know, Crayola loves you, so. Now, the crayon joke came after I got out. So. <laughs> but it's before so that, we were just, before fun. that, we, we were just jarheads and knuckle draggers and apes. Yeah, like, you know, it's still so much and fun. And horrible, horrible alcoholics. Now that we aren't podcasting routinely with a Marine, I can't make them nearly as off those jokes nearly as often. Yeah. Yeah, no, you just feel bad for James Hunter. He he may get a cake at Dragon Con shaped like a green crown. Yeah, that was the thing with the Carl jokes came after my time too, but now everyone makes them, so you just sort of roll with it. Yeah. I just I just basically say I'm too old for those jokes. They're after my time. But I'm grumpy that way. <laughs> so where did, but where did you get the idea from for this series? Uh, it kind of originally started a few years back. I got this weird brainwave about alternate Star Wars prequels, uh, to which I've kind of turned into. It was I started writing some some notes, but it's like. I can't actually do any of this because I don't want to get sued into oblivion by the mouse. Uh, yeah. So I kind of put it aside and then galaxy's edge happened and star Wars, not star Wars. And I started thinking and pondering and came up with the clone wars, but not dumb. And, uh, that kind of led to the unity wars with all sorts of other, thoughts and ideas and influences from David Drake and uh, E. Doc Smith and a few other things. A lot of good fiction was started with people trying to fix Star Wars. <laughs> yep. Timothy Zahn is still the master. But. He is amazing and such a sweet, nice guy. Never met him, but I've never been Come much of Never been much of a con goer either, so. The only one I've ever been to really is uh, Life, the Universe, and Everything, which is where the Spot Rips anthology got started last year. But uh, See, you need to come to Dragon Con. You can fix it. We're, we still got tickets on sale. <laughs> not that she's a shell or anything. No. I, I am not. I'm not. <clears throat> I, I, I am a slave to the Dragon Con overlords. Maybe in a year or two. All right, so let's dig in. But before we get started talking about the book itself, let's talk about the cover. So I'm going to pull that up and share that screen. So the recover is glorious. We showed the first one, but this one looks different but awesome. So can you tell us how, how you came to, up with this cover? Well, it was only part, it was Steve Bowyer at uh, Athon asked me what I had in mind. And uh, there was an old. Um, an old Robert E. Howard cover, a Bane Robert E. Howard cover. That I uh, love the Bane. It kind of the it was kind of this sort of layout. So I said, it, I kind of I'm kind of imagining something like this, but with uh, 
guys in this kind of armor. And I actually sketched out what I had envisioned for the armor. And the I can't remember, cannot remember the uh, artist's name off the top of my head, but that's what he came up with. And I looked at it and said, that's awesome. And is the um, the craft that I zoomed in on in the top right, is that part of the story or just yeah, something that, that added for flavor? No, that is actually the, uh, that is the brother, one of the Brotherhood starships. So it looks that, like that, was an, that was another design that I, I'd sketched up. And then uh, uh, Jamie Glover actually made a full 3D model of it that I passed along to Steve and it got ad adapted into, into this. The radiators are a little bit awesome bigger. Work. He does. But uh, he is, he's definitely an underrated cover artist. So um, what would you say the 30-second elevator pitch for this novel is? Well, again, the Clone Wars, but not dumb. Uh, the, uh, I went with the idea that nobody names a war after the good guys or so the clones had to be on the bad guy's side and I went from there. And this is the first contact. Okay. And, and what do you think? Go ahead. And as you may be able to tell from the title, it doesn't necessarily go all that well. Understood. So what do you think makes your series special? Talking about the larger Unity Wars and the fall of Valdak, which is the first book. Well, I mix, uh, I mix a lot of the, the combat sort of stuff that I do that I've gotten fairly well practiced at over the last nine years I've been doing this with some borderline hard science fiction. Uh, there's not a whole lot of magical technology in it. Uh, so, and I just, I try for a sense of scale and uh, realism, not only in characterization, but also kind of the, the ethical outlook of things that George Lucas, I think, missed. Because when you boil down to boil it down, what do you call somebody who creates expendable human beings to use as cannon fodder and labor? Drill sergeants. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. And there, there's there's definitely a certain element of uh, North Korea in yeah. uh, the way that these these clone armies function, because we we grew them in a vat over about. Two months, we can grow more in a vat in over about two months. So who cares? All right. And what do you what uh, tropes, either from the fantasy or the sci-fi side, do you think um, that Fall of Veldak hits the best? I mean, it's a combat story, so there's a lot of space combat. There's a lot of ground combat. Um, there is. There's some some mysteries like that shouldn't work that way. Why is that working that way? That don't necessarily get answered in this book, but um, 
So I gotta think, you you see you see the use of clone soldiers in a lot of science fiction, and I don't think anybody's really quite looked at it from the same angle that I'm approaching it with this series. So is our trope something you think about both as a reader and when you're writing? Not consciously, no. I know okay. some people do. I know some people break it down. Oh, this trope and that trope. And it's like, I just tell the story. Does it make sense within the story, within the setting, within the world? If it doesn't, it goes. If it does, roll with it and see what the consequences are. So you sort of take the and you sort of take the and then what's next kind of logical train to figure out yeah. if this happens, what's the next? Along with the enemy always gets a vote. Unfortunately so. I found that to be the hard true the hard time. So um, what genre or subgenres do you think, besides the obvious military sci-fi, what uh, genre or subgenres do you think this fits into the best? Probably space opera. Oh. What about it you think makes space opera a good fit? Galactic scale, aliens, ancient mysteries. It's in a, in a way it's kind of my own my own stab at a a different version of Galaxy's Edge, I guess you could say. So Okay. Fair yeah. enough. Well, we know JR loves the Galaxy's Edge. So but can you tell us a bit about your main character in this and what makes them unique among all of the uh, variety of characters found? Well, for the series, I have two main characters and one comes in the first book and the other doesn't show up till the second book. Um, the, the second one is kind of the first character I've done is really kind of a, a rookie, a newbie, an FNG <laughs> um, who I love the in, FNG in, in Marine parlance. He's a boot, mm -hmm. even though he's a corporal by the time the story starts, but he's never really seen any action until all hell breaks loose. So that, that book kind of goes through his, his hardening through combat. The main character in the first and third books is, he's not only a veteran, you could say he's a paladin. Okay. He's a, he's a paladin with a power gun. And uh, one of the things that I try to make extremely plain with this military brotherhood that he's a part of is, yes, they have a very strict code of honor. Uh, they have very strict moral rules that they engage in warfare over. But you take that as some kind of foolishness and weakness at your peril because they will crush you. So, well, one thing I've learned through the YouTube comment section is even a sergeant can be a boot if you if you judge the saltiness of the comments on most videos about Marines. <laughs> um, but, but you mentioned that your main character is basically becomes a paladin. So does that mean you are influenced by like the, the iconic uh, games of yore? Not really. I've never, I've objected for a while to the gamification of storytelling. Um, I think it narrows the possibilities you can explore by focusing on game mechanics 
it's, it's why I've never really seen any appeal to lit RPG that may make me an awful person to some people, but uh, it's it doesn't it doesn't appeal to me. I traumatize lit RPG fans by saying I would really like the the character sheets to be like their separate chapter in an audiobook because I don't want to hear about the character sheet. No, you, no. you you would have thought I had kicked a puppy. <laughs> So I was just asking more about like not so much like lit RPG and the gamification of novels, but uh, a lot of authors that grew up playing like Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder and all those tabletop role playing type games have let that sort of lore seep into how they tell stories. The most I ever played Dungeons and Dragons was Baldur's Gate. I've never I played love the Baldur's Gate. I've never so played. I've never played the tabletop. Um, what? No, never have. I've it's it's I've never really had the opportunity and I oh I can fix that. I know some people. I we can fix that. <laughs> Peter's <laughs> like, no, no, we don't need to. He's gotta stay in America long enough. There's that. <laughs> um but uh I think there's been a lot of transition in the last 20 30 years more towards the anti-hero at best and i've seen some uh i've seen some who go for just outright villain protagonist and well i can definitely explore some of the shades of gray particularly in the military thriller uh genre um i was like i wanted some some hardcore badasses who were very much of the honorable good guy sort of like I, I find a lot of people seem to accept as a default the uh, the dark helmet quote evil will always triumph because good is dumb so my take was good ain't always dumb good ain't always nice and okay. that's very much the Karakakin Brotherhood. They're not nice. If you cross them, they will destroy you. But they will make sure that, but they will make sure that, in fact, I actually just put a short story up on my blog this morning as sort of a preview called Karakakin Honor, where somebody tries to lie to them and turn them into the instruments of a very shady uh, takeover and they find out about it. And yeah, the consequences are not pretty. I can get down with that. I can get down with a group like that. Because no. I have people like, go, you tried so to nice. And I'm like, I'm not. No. I'm really not. You, tr you tried to blacken our honor and now you're going to pay. I, I can understand that. Justice will be served. I, I am sympathetic because sometimes like the it started with Star Wars for a lot of people, but in some cases the Jedi seemed as much as terroristic as the supposed Empire. And it was I don't know if it's bad storytelling for people that only engage with the content through the movies. So I get the allure sometimes. It, it was it was bad storytelling. It was very bad storytelling. Um I know the prequels have Gained some prestige in some people's eyes after the sequel trilogy, <clears throat> but 
I did find I found a fan I found fan edits of the three prequel movies. I've watched the first two. The first one they actually cut out enough of the cringeworthy stuff that it's actually a halfway decent movie, but they had to cut about half an hour's stuff out. The second one, it didn't matter what they cut or rearranged, they couldn't save the storytelling on that one. It's Jar Jar's fault. I like Jar Jar. He's funny. Of course you like Jar Jar. You can resemble Jar Jar someday. <laughs> he's the he's the dark Sith Lord. Part part of the part of what made their this edit of the first one tolerable was they cut out most of Jar Jar's lines. Well, that would make it much better. Yeah. But the second one is like they they really fell into the tell don't show without telling enough at the same time. We're, yeah, we're they were trying to be Greek about it. Yeah. We're told that the separatists are the bad guys. We never see why. We never see any instance of why the separatists are the bad guys, why Christopher Lee's character is so evil, except that he has a red lightsaber. I don't think the color red makes you evil. No. So, let's see how there was... Obviously, I've, I've found that some people can go really hog wild with subversive fan theories that turn. I mean, look at Burt Strips. Burt Strips is the ultimate example where they take Burt and Ernie and turn them into. They'll take a, a picture of Burt and Ernie and just have this the darkest, grimmest shit attached to it as the story. And I see some of the same thing with a lot of other fan theories. And, and yes, I include Gothelus did nothing wrong in, in that one. But uh, <clears throat> Gothelus did some things wrong. Did a lot of things wrong. But, uh, but yeah, the Jedi, the, the Brotherhood came out as, okay, I can't use the Jedi for this alternate idea I had. So what am I going to substitute? And the end result was, again, an armored brotherhood of space knights with power guns who have a, a very ironclad code that I actually derived from the code of Charlemagne. And I think it works. So. Go on. I want to hear about this code that you, you pulled from history because I'm a history nerd. Oh, um, so Doc will stop us for going too far off field. So, so you're good. Go on. History. Uh, give me a give me a second. I gotta dig it up here. Is it sex life is history? Ouch! That was harsh. I'm gonna cry into my historic beer now. <laughs> do whatever you gotta do, dude. <laughs> Sometimes I'm amazed you still talk to me. <laughs> me too. I think you're a glutton for punishment. Oh, no? If you don't have it handy, it's, it's okay. I went medic because I'm not a glutton for punishment. I'm a glutton for punishing others. No. Oh, look, you're screaming in pain. Your airway is clear. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which is uh, great to say until it, until you feel a little embarrassed when your three year old tells his classmate that. 
Well, then you just did something right. That's parenting win right there. Here we go. Uh, so the code. To fear God and obey his commandments, to protect the weak and defenseless, to help the poor whenever possible, to refrain from the wanton giving of offense, to live by honor and for glory, to despise pecuniary reward, to fight for the welfare of all, to obey the superiors of the brotherhood, to guard the honor of our brothers, to eschew unfairness, meanness, or deceit, keep faith with our given word, to always speak the truth, to persevere until the end any enterprise begun, never to flee before the enemy. Ooh, I like that. Okay. That is the code. Well done. I, I had, had I only made I only had to make a couple of adjustments from Charlemagne the Word. Because <laughs> it is sometime in the distant future, so Okay. All right, Doc. You get to ask him about secondary characters now so that I've done well, the feed right now. So there now that JR has his history nut off. <laughs> I'm sorry. I <laughs> well, you know that's going as a as a what do you call it? A little hashtag. Oh god, nope. you don't even know what a hashtag is. <laughs> okay. JR is so into history he forgot what a hashtag is. Um <laughs> So the hashtag cloud after this one's gonna be interesting. I saw the one after after Walt's interview. Yeah, mostly it's her telling me add this to the bottom. I, I has, love Grandpa Walt. He's nicer than my own granddad. Uh, at least to me. No comment. But okay. um, anyways, how about some secondary characters? You got any that you want to tell us about? Well, the. Uh, Probably the biggest one in the fall of Valdek, I think, is Brother Legate Krennic, who was actually named after one of the recon marines who was cadre when I first got to battalion. Um, though the Brother Legate Brother Legate Krennic is in many ways nothing like the the Sergeant Krennic I knew. Um, he's almost seven feet tall, close to three hundred pounds, and he always seems as if he's bored, but he never misses anything. He is stone calm, sees everything, hears everything, and seems to always know exactly what to do. And he, uh, Eric and Scalas is the main character. And he's looked up at uh, he's looked up at Krennic as essentially a father figure, even though he himself is a veteran many times over. So, I thought Krennic was kind of the to me he was the the standout side character, him and the the corporal the lo the the local corporal who gets dragged into interpreter roles. <laughs> So, because he's because he was a spacer who got pressed back into service when the attack happened, and he was the only one who knew the the trade cant, the sort of lingua franca of interstellar travel. So he was the only one who could talk to the brothers. Ooh, that's kind of important. Yeah. So, so with that second with that secondary character, 
Um, do you plan on revisiting maybe a, a side series with them? Because that sounds interesting too. It's some of that is going to depend on Athon and uh, how this relaunch goes. A so, lot in of, other words, if lots of people buy these books, more likely. Yes. Yeah. See, I know how to market. <laughs> I'm, I'm the 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 fate of the series going forward depends on how the relaunch goes next week. So, all right. Well, you can do your part, dear listener. <laughs> so, we now know what to do if we want to hear have those side characters become main characters. But can you tell us a bit about the bad guys? We don't see too much of the bad guys. Um, well, we see a lot of them, but most of them are ho the equivalent of the Chinese hordes coming over the wire at Chosen. Um, JR may know what, that, what I'm talking about there. I, I do. Yeah. My uncle was there. <laughs> he was one of the Chosen few. He was. That's, that's not nothing. Um, okay. Chosen Reservoir, 1950, Korea. First Marine Division got cut off and surrounded by a whole lot of communist Chinese and in the depth of winter. And it was one of the biggest fights in Marine Corps history after World War II. When it was. But uh, Those yeah, were Chosen, a, a Chosen Few... Chosen Few carries a lot of weight. Uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, bad guys. We see a little bit of the leader of the Galactic Unity, but there, there are definitely some enigmas about him. And okay. I don't want to give too much away. No, no, right. we don't want spoilers. They got to buy the book to know more. I like that. Yeah. We will go on then. Yeah, right. otherwise I'm going to ask JR's question. Yeah, so speaking of characters, so we all know that authors tend to be dicks to their characters, and you more so than many. So if your characters ever met you in a back alley and they said, you know what, this Peter guy is the guy that made my life living hell, how would that play out for you? Now, for most authors, you know, we kind of live sedentary lives. Sometimes the, the weight sort of finds us, but... You were recon, so I'm thinking of all of the authors we've interviewed, you probably have more of a chance of living. But how do you think that's going to go? Yeah, it'd probably be a draw with most of them. Okay. Or it'd just be uh, a bottle of whiskey. whiskey I don't know. If your hangovers are bad as JR's, that's a draw. <laughs> hey. Uh, at least I didn't call you at like crazy hours like somebody does to old Grandpa Walt. He's <laughs> calling you out, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I heard I about that. I speak better than Grandpa Walt does, or at least I mute my phone. <laughs> so you've talked about, you know, the thought that you put into designing these characters, and I know you don't tend to think about tropes when you read, but are character archetypes something you think about? Again, not really. Um, I basically, again, with a lot of a lot of my main characters being first person, um, not so much in the Unity Wars. That's that's all third person. But 
a lot of times I'll just, I'm not thinking about an archetype. I'm thinking about who this dude really is, who he'd be in the real world. Um, again, most of my characters are veterans when things kick off. Most of them have a similar background to mine. So that may be me being lazy, but <laughs> it, uh, it makes it easier to get inside their heads because, again, we've got a lot in common. I don't think that's lazy. I realized something when I was writing the second reservist because I had some of the, the special forces type troops. It's different types of troops and different MOSs and different periods. They all think a little bit differently. It's not to say that a soldier is a soldier is a soldier, but someone who's doing paperwork might have a different mindset than someone who's driving boats, than jumping out of, like all of it is a different mentality. So I don't think it's lazy to write what you can make the most believable. No. I mean, I'm going to, I love Larry Korea, but Larry Korea is a combat accountant and those are not very common. And his main character is a combat accountant. And it works well for yeah. him, doesn't it? He just. It does great. I love yeah. it. I'm not dis disparaging it at all. I, I like most of Larry's stuff. I actually just finished uh, Destroyer of Worlds last night. Isn't it good? <laughs> he is my favorite midget. <laughs> Whatever. He's not a midget, JR. I met him in person. It's true. He's a midget. I know. I made Don't you go meet him height. in person. I've, I've hung out with Larry quite a few times, and he's taller than me, and I'm not a small man. It's oh, all, no, no, it's no. all angles and distortion. Smoke well, and I, 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 when I met him, I looked at him and I went, I like standing next to you. I was a little <laughs> drunk. And he goes, really? And they went, yeah, you make me feel normal. Because so, Larry is only like two inches taller than my dad. Daddy so I'm like, you make me feel normal. So uh, we've talked about your characters, but in many worlds, the, the worlds where the story takes place are as much characters as the antagonists and protagonists. So can you give us a little bit of a hint about the worlds where the fall of Valdak and the Unity Wars happens? Well, I try not to keep going back to the same planet over and over again. Like, try to wait. They're but, all Tatooine, uh, even if they're not called Tatooine. Yeah. But, uh, so, we don't actually see a whole lot of Valdek outside of the, the last standing uh, planetary fortress, but it's been getting hammered by orbital bombardment so much that the storms are obscuring most of the surface. Anyway, um, okay. the uh, yeah, we see some. We'll we'll see some fairly normal planets. We'll see some radically kind of Paul Anderson level of anomalies. I don't know if uh, you've ever read any of his. Uh, Plus, a Technic League stories. Uh, I may have, I may have borrowed some inspiration from Paul Anderson as well. Uh, but uh, I know there's at least there's at least one in the third book that uh, um, it's essentially a heavy metal treasure house that I kind of borrowed from a Paul Anderson story. It's uh, 
it's the leftover core of a gas giant that got everything else flensed off of it by a uh, supernova. And because it's such a treasure house of heavy metals, it becomes a strategic target. All right, next question is yours, Doc. So we know that there's only three books so far in the series, but that sounded mean. I'm sorry. Three books in the series, um, but how many do you plan to do? It seems like there's going to be a lot more than three. Hopefully there is. Um, I have a couple of contingency plans, again, um, based on how this, how things go forward. Um, there could be one more. There could be five more. We'll have to see. Okay. So each universe has its own technology and science. Can you give us a little bit of what to expect in this in the way of technology? I don't go too much into the magic, magic tech sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> I love the magic tech chronicles though. They're fun. Um, one of the things, and it was actually Mike Cooper who got me thinking along these, these lines. Uh, a lot of times in science fiction, you see essentially aircraft carriers or space going ships, even Star Trek, even though they tried to go weird and flying saucer with it, it was still, why is that way down and thrust is that way in space? So I went back to the good old days of giant rocket ships. So all the starships are built like skyscrapers. Down is towards the, uh, the thrust bells. And uh, a lot of them can land on their tails on planets, though they have to have cooling systems to put out the fires if they're landing on something that isn't a prepared pad. Um, I also lifted a bit of technology from Doc Smith called the Bergenholm, which is a field that can cancel or render inertia negative. Okay. When it cancels it, they can go basically at a continuous, a continuous thrust at whatever velocity they want. When it goes inverted, they go tachyonic and go faster than light. Okay. So... That's that's the the FTL system. It's the Bergenholm. Though there might be some other interesting stuff coming up later with one of the alien races. So all the tech in the series that you've developed, which one would you steal for daily use, and how would you abuse that tech? I don't know about abusing, but I definitely carry a power gun on a daily basis. <laughs> I mean, if. Bullets are great, but if you can, I can smack a packet of copper ions at uh, just short shy of light speed at a target. I'll take that. That sounds like a lot of fun, though, at the range, at least. So, you have fantastic aliens in your universe, right? Yes. How did you go about the design of it? Was it whole cloth? Was it a bad nightmare? Was it just, uh, I need them to do this, or how weird can I make them? A lot of it was I need them to do this, um, just kind of putting elements together as I went. Um, the uh, 
they've only appeared briefly so far, but they'll play a bigger role later on. Uh, one is the Sef Kit, which are basically 12 foot long uh, centauroid dragons. Okay. Who are also extremely, uh, extremely civilized. In fact, uh, there's a cardinal archbishop who is a Sef Kit at some point. But uh, yeah, they, they start to they'll, they'll start to play a, a larger role in the, the fourth book. Okay, so how many aliens oh, roughly oh, do you have, or you haven't settled on the number yet? I haven't settled on the number yet because it's a big galaxy. So we we do know that this makes it a fantasy novel because dragons mean it's fantasy, right, Doc? Fuck you, Jr. And the horse you rode in on, and eat some pineapple pizza while you're at it. <laughs> Again. That was another borrowing from Paul Anderson because one of David Falcane's crew was a 12 foot long centauroid dragon who was a Buddhist. That's an interesting combination. Does that mean they don't eat, uh, they don't like eat flesh then? No, he, he was a vegetarian Buddhist? because he was a Buddhist. Yeah, Buddhists are vegetarians. Yeah. Some, some Buddhists are. I, oh, I thought it was a tenant, but okay, fair enough. All right, so um, clearly this interview is winding down, but before we wrap this up, was there anything about the fall of Val Valbeck or more specifically the broader Unity Wars that you wanted to tell us that uh, we didn't ask before we move on? Well, I did. Uh, the, there is a lot of combat in it. It is very much a combat story. So a lot of the, the tech and fantastical science fiction stuff does take a backseat to combat action. Okay. So, so, uh, so if, you, if you like combat action, if you like military SF, you should like this one. So right now, um, when you first released that you only had the ebook out so now that Atheon has it, does that mean they're audio books for, for those that listen with their, uh, or read books with their ear holes instead? As far as I know, audio is still yet to be determined. Um, Can you get that out? The pa the paperback is actually uh, live already. Okay. All right. So uh, if you have any uh, more, you can always uh, when the when the audio comes out, you can update the listeners in our Facebook group, um, which we'll give the link to later, dear listener. But speaking of contact information, Peter, how can uh, listeners find you? I do have a uh, an author page on Facebook, uh, Pete Neal, an author. I've also got my personal blog, AmericanPretorians.com, and those are the best ways to get a hold of me if you really want to. All right, and you can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters, tack, and tack blades. Anchor.fm backslash blasters, tack, and tack blades. You can follow us on Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. That is a real email address, just in case you're wondering. Blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. We do have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen, and we try to convince Doc the 
error for ways because pineapples do not belong on pizza at facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast. And if you want to support the show, you can make a monthly pledge over on anchor FM backslash blasters tech and tech blades or do a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it's for the podcast. And I promise to keep our uh, lovely co-host duly intoxicated. The drinks will continue until their liver surrenders. Bring us home, Doc. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us for the absentee, overworked, ADHD Nick Garber, J.R. Hanley, ever tortured but deserving of it. I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blade podcast. We'll be back next week, same time, where we'll indulge our love of fantasy, sci-fi, cheesy jokes, nerd culture, torturing J.R., and whatever else is in our glass. Fair enough.